and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the policies, events and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am very happy this week to be joined by a special guest, Adam Toos, who's a member of ECFR's Board of Trustees. He's an award-winning author. He's the Professor of History at Columbia University, head of their European Institute and uh, for the purposes of this podcast, he's also responsible for the, the resurrection, promotion of the term polycrisis, which mm. has become a, a kind of meme in intellectual circles for understanding the, the world that we're in at the moment. Um, and we're going to talk about the polycrisis, um, what it means for, for Europe, um, in fact, what it means, first of all, <laughs> and what it means for Europe. Um, and, and and why this is a kind of useful way of thinking about the current moment. So maybe we could start with that um, basic question. Why why did you, well, why don't you tell the, the listeners where you got the term from and, and why you think it's so useful for, for explaining this, the, the world that we live in at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's not a term I invented. I mean, I um, quite deliberately picked it up. It was out there. Um, and that struck me as interesting. And, and where it was, more specifically, is protected particularly interesting for this podcast, because I think it's a European term. Um, I mean, I encountered it first in speeches Jean-Claude Juncker was giving. Uh, I've yet to find it precisely first mentioned, but they're between 2014 and 2016. And he picked it up from a French theorist of complexity, Edgar Morin, whose career stretches back to the real period of existentialism and the great struggles in Paris over French philosophy and Marxism in the 1950s. Um, but Morin used it in a book he published in the late 1990s. So, um, And I initially accounted it and treated it like a historian. In other words, here's this term that's out there in Europe to describe the incredibly messy and complex situation that the world's been in. Not, you know, since 2020. I, I first thematized it in a book I wrote, Shutdown, about the COVID crisis, but since the 2010s. And I put it in parallel with um, other great power conversations about the current complexity, which in the Chinese case would be things like changes not seen in a century, and then the more specific discourses they have about foreign relations and internal security. And sitting in America the way I did, oh, the way I do, um, the, the increasing incredibly intense national conversation in the United States about the multiple crises affecting the United States, which is also, I think, a polycrisis. They don't use the term. They just simply refer to the crisis of the republic. So I thought the, the European term was interesting. What does it mean? I mean, what does it stand for? What is the added value here? I think the claim is that we are dealing with a situation in which the idea of reducing our range of problems to one central problem has become increasingly implausible. Um, and so instead, what we have to do is confront the interaction between multiple different crises, which are irreducibly distinct and yet irreducibly interconnected with each other and are taking on a new complexity and a new intensity such that the situation we face is worse than the sum of the parts. Um, that's what I take to be the essential idea about a poly crisis. It is, in a sense, a reflection, therefore, on prior, more unitary, more simple notions of crisis. Um, you could say that polycrisis as a term arises once an answer like, it's the economy stupid, no longer makes sense. Um, because it's the economy stupid says there's one thing you need to care about, and that's the economy. Whereas what polycrisis says is that even when going is bad, you need to simultaneously think about three or four different things. It's also a way, I think, of resisting, say, the 
absolute hegemony of any single problem, as big as it might be, say, climate. So polycrisis for me was a way of thinking about the way in which climate has been intersected by pandemic and war. Uh, and crisis of democracy, you could say, right? So that's the function of the term. I think of it as a kind of a placeholder in the sense of an acknowledgement of our ignorance and acknowledgement of our failure to have a single comprehensive unitary theory as a challenge, therefore, to continuously, you know, um, test ourselves against the complexity of reality. So when Juncker was using it, he was thinking mainly about the Euro crisis and the Euro crisis. crisis. Think about it. Yeah, Euro crisis, um, and then refugee crisis, and Ukraine won. Right, this is fourteen fifteen. Yeah, yeah. Right, so you already had those three elements. Plus, you clearly already had insurgent nationalisms, uh, uh, populist, as it were, risk on the horizon. You could run this back to 0809. I mean, I you know I wrote crashed a pretty comprehensive book about the 08 crisis, and one of the things I felt particularly insistent on was inserting the Georgia war into the crisis, thereby also opening the door to inserting Ukraine. So I was already, if you like, in polycrisis mode. But I think without I, the term. so again, without the term, I'm or rather <laughs> with Juncker, without Juncker providing it belatedly, the one I missed was the swine flu epidemic in 2008 9 which swept through in as a harbinger of 2020. And I didn't fully at that time integrate the fiasco of either the WTO Doha round in 08 or the disaster of the Copenhagen Climate Conference in 2009, which give us a pretty good idea of how climate issues are going to reflect multipolarity. So I would say we're in a kind of polycrisis epoch. Yeah, because um, that's one of the things I was going to ask. At the risk of, of turning ourselves into even bigger hate figures than, than than we probably were already, we we met earlier in the year at the World Relief Forum at Davos. Um, we got to own it, Mark. At this point, <laughs> mate, you know. And um, I and I seem to remember you and Neil Ferguson, another historian, talking about the polycrisis. And he was saying that he was very maybe we weren't doing it together, but I remember him oh, yeah. saying, "What yeah. what's the point of the polycrisis? Isn't it just history? Isn't that just what happens?" at any point. Do you think there's something specific about our epoch? Because you've just taken it back and you kind of relativized the the current moment by saying actually, you know, 2008 was already a kind of polycrisis. So, so we've had at least a decade of polycrisis around that. Hmm. But, um, or do you think with, that that's just what modern world is like when you go beyond having small um, autarkic polities that, that aren't connected with each other? I mean, I don't quite, I don't quite get the... Because I think in from Neil, it was supposed to be not just a put down, but also a reassuring put down. In other words, chill, you know, don't get so excited, everything's okay, or rather, everything's just normal. But as a, well, we're both historians of, uh, of the modern period, why anyone would find the claim that, well, it's just modern history reassuring, I don't understand, right? Because modern history is has had a few it is is is, is protean right i mean it's janus faced it's 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 sublime in the full romantic sense it's literally like watching a volcano go off right i mean it's very dramatic it's very spectacular we've found ways of harnessing it to produce enormous progress undeniable progress measures like you know child mortality life expectancy and so on are fairly unambiguous but on the other hand yes enormous destructive capacity so i don't really quite get it i mean if if the if the, if it, that's supposed to be reassuring then you know i think it's pretty cold comfort but no, actually, I think the strong the claim is stronger. I mean, the the polycrisis claim is to is more aligned with what the environmental historians or ecologists call the Great Acceleration. I mean, I think right now we are struggling with a kind of split consciousness, which is that with our 
you know, our rational science-believing mind, we are fully bought in on the idea that things are going to happen like the ice caps melting, which are clearly singular, irreversible, mean that the world that we, our children and grandchildren, will live in is fundamentally unlike that that any modern societies have previously lived in. I think most of us buy this story, right? And on the other hand, we're tempted to say, oh, but really, this is just history. And I don't think those two things go. I, you know, I run out of, I've, I've run out of, of, I can't count the number of times I've been asked. I'll explain like the drama of the energy transition we go through. And then somebody will ask, well, they'll simply say, what are the precedents for this? And the answer is, if you take the climate diagnosis seriously, we live in radically unprecedented times. And of course, climate is just one way of describing the Anthropocene, the more general destabilization of humanity's relationship with the environment. It's just one facet of a much more comprehensive destabilization, which includes species loss and, on the other hand, species mutation, like the pandemic. The pandemic is emphatically part of this same destabilization, massive pollution. But I actually think the China-US confrontation is also historically novel and needs not to be simply pulled back into some other framework for thinking about international relations like 1914, because never before in history has there been a state as populous and powerful and as potently organized as the People's Republic of China. Full stop, never. 1.4 billion people mobilized and organized that way. It's completely unprecedented. And never before has a state like that faced an incumbent as powerful and as filled with missionary zeal as the United States still is. That is, you know, that's that's the climax of all power politics, not the repetition of it. So we, you think that the, the US-China relationship is uh, qualitatively different in its scariness from... I think it would be incredibly... I, I, it would be a kind of taking Eurocentrism to a whole new level to imagine that we could safely reduce one to the other. Why on earth would you imagine that... China organized behind the Communist Party, thinking of itself as the legitimate heir to the revolutionary tradition, with obvious reason, confronting the United States, like whose sense of exceptionalism and whose actual potency and whose track record of exceptionalism is unlike that of any European power. Why would, yes. I mean, we're both... British. I mean, the, the British Empire had a thin, 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 thin little crust of power stretched over a world that was <laughs> one tenth the level of GDP per capita, run on a shoestring budget, tiny, tiny, tiny little light footprint. Transformative, of course, because it doesn't take much to transform, but but nevertheless, thin crust by comparison with the sort of power that the United States articulates. Um, and we are, and we do live, and this is an irreversible element also of the Anthropocenic diagnosis. One way of tracking the Anthropocene is the, you know, the layer upon layer of nuclear garbage left in the environment. We live in a thermonuclear age, and that changes the entire. So nukes, the the size of but I, size of nukes, the size of power, and the environmental dynamic. Add politics, you know, the 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 ongoing realization of the project of nation-state empowerment, effectively, which has emerged de facto as the common denominator here. Um, I think one of the big differences is that most of the world was, was colonised yeah. uh, 100 yeah. years ago. Yeah. I mean, think about, the, think about the pandemics. Like, the great precursor is the Spanish flu. Yeah. We simply don't know how many people died, but we know it was epically large numbers. And we know those two things because clearly the vast majority of people died within the British Empire, but the British Empire didn't count them. Yeah. Right? So we just infer it. Whereas now... Modi, who wasn't actually even facing a live and serious pandemic, decided that it was simply an act of 
it was essential for any national politician aspiring to lead India the way that he does and actually to form the Indian state and the society the way that the BJP promises to do for him to have a shutdown policy too. So he damn well did. Right. So and and and, and with with dramatic you know, so it's what Brzezinski called the global political awakening, this kind of... Yeah, uh, is, is, you know, if, if it, it, it was begins clearly in the 1970s. Yeah. So if you said to me that the age, I buy this, you know, Adam, but like it's clearly not the last three years and it's clearly not the last 10 years, this is a half-century diagnosis, you know, happily shake on that. I mean, it, Edgar Morin comes out of the Club of Rome report moment. He comes out of the disorientation of Western social theory in the 1970s. If you said to me that it's not coincidental that you know, intellectual Marxism in the 60s and 70s goes down the same route with thinking complexity, again, no disagreement. This is a this has clearly been on the horizon for half a century. Um, but you think it's got. But it, we're now there's a difference between it being on the horizon. The poly crisis. This is a this is arrived now. This is no, and the poly crisis was the anticipation, and we still live in the anticipation, right? I mean, have we ever ever lived collectively under an anticipation of anything like the climate change to the intense degree that we currently do? I mean, again, we've never ever attempted on a thesis like that. Because we're so bought in on the science that we can't really acknowledge just how vertiginous it is on the basis of an astonishingly radical thesis. We're planning to fundamentally re-engineer the energy system of the world. This is amazing stuff. We've never done this before. Um, so another thing that people are, um, you know, waxing lyrical about in terms of uh, its ability to change the structure of the world is uh, technology and yeah. artificial intelligence. Yeah. How does that fit? Is that another Yes, I would. I would agree. I mean, that's part of the point crisis in that, like when I when I started circulating, moved this idea from a descriptive one to something I was, in a sense, advocating as an idea to move with. You know, which that was twelve months ago, and AI was a relatively niche interest. People were already saying, you know, Adam, shouldn't you be thinking about tech? Now it's very difficult to avoid it. Um, that clearly has to be incorporated as part of, it. and for you know, for better and for worse. I mean, if this AI doesn't, you know, cure cancer in the next ten years, I think we've got reason to be disappointed. That's the sort of thing, protein structure. So it's going to cure cancer, but end human agency. Well, we don't know yet. Human agency will clearly have to inter, you know, will in future have to be articulated in relationship to it, um, and that that is a that is absolutely a huge a huge challenge of the, you know, not even the not even the distant future at this point, right? So, um, so we've got we've identified a number of historically unprecedented things that that uh, are going on, um, but part of the the point of the poly crisis is to think about how they relate to each other, you know, to make the whole world and the sum of its parts. Can you talk a little bit about the intersection between of these different things? I mean, c- classically, you know, on on um, climate, for example, people would look at you know, the interface between um, uh, the sort of, you know, they'd see it as a sort of collective action problem. And, uh, mm-hmm. but it sounds to me like what you're talking about is a lot more complicated than just a classical collective action problem where you have a, uh, it's a more, it's a much messier thing because of the poly crisis and the intersection, because it's not just about politics and climate and economics. It's a lot of other things that are, that are bound up with it. Hmm. I mean, for me, we should. I mean, the pandemic remains the like the the obvious testing case, right? I mean, the the disaster arrived. It wasn't the mega disaster that that many people in the epidemiological space had predicted, but I mean, we shouldn't underestimate it. We saw an absolutely staggering implosion of global GDP, an interruption of ordinary life, 
it was forecasted like the climate crisis was forecasted millions of people died like I, that's that's the the and what's astonishing is how rapidly we've somehow like somehow displaced it to the rearview mirror and we now move on and we're no longer talking about it in a in a serious way but but um but that to me is the test run of what this looks like and we know it has ramifying implications all the way from mental health at one end um to interstate diplomacy on the other it's, it's, it's hard to deny surely that the cooling of relations between china and the west which was already ongoing under trump was massively amplified by the interruption of contacts that took place in, in 21 and 22 right so and it's now beginning to thaw and i think as soon as it does it will begin to shift the terms and in fact people will wake up to the damage that's been done right because when people actually want to freely circulate they realize how hot this this confrontation has become so I don't really know whether we need further demonstrations of the potency of this point. Um, but it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, it's a bit of a, maybe it's maybe a bit of a diversion, but, um, you know, you wrote this amazing book uh, looking at that kind of process. And, you know, you wrote it while we were all locked down and when this was the the crisis rather than the poly crisis. It was, it was a singular crisis at the moment, at that moment. Um, but... One of the things that... Well, it didn't they... feel like a singular crisis. I don't know what it felt like in your household, but in my household, it definitely felt like multiple crises at once. Unemployment, interruption of education, psychological havoc caused by, you know, people being shuffled around, all read through the lens of the epidemic, perhaps. But it was a singular... Uh, it felt like a singular cause. There was a cause, yeah. Right. No, but I mean, the, 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 what that then did was Obviously, to no, no, I, a shock that then exposed these absolutely. multiple fault lines, and you suddenly realised that you weren't entirely certain how stable the world before had actually been. <laughs> no, I think that's definitely true. But the other thing that happened during that kind of moment was everyone went back to the Spanish flu, and they discovered that more people died in the Spanish flu than in the mm. First World War, and mm. yet... Nobody ever talks about the Spanish yes. flu, and everyone's obsessed. With and the it, First did, World War. it didn't even show up in the political records. I mean, yeah. I, I, I've done archival work on the period of the First World War, and I promise you, it doesn't show up. You know, people come and go at the Paris Peace Conference because they've got the flu and they move on. Right? Yeah. So there's something very distinctive about a biopolitical regime like the one we're currently in, in which that isn't possible, right? So, you, but and yet you just said we've kind of gone from this being front of mind yeah so it's still so being something that we're traumatized by but we kind of moved on from it there's a kind of meta inconsistency <laughs> where we know perfectly well when the next strain of even more dangerous flu comes along yeah. we will comprehensively panic again right yeah. so so you know one of the questions in this domain of polycrisis sometimes people look at me and go adam polycrisis is just another word for being a freaked out liberal centrist elite you know, cosmopolitan, citizen of nowhere, character like you are, the person who meets Mark at Davos and so on. And the polycrisis is just you saying you don't understand the world anymore. To which my response is kind of roll with the punch. Well, <laughs> yes, probably that's not wrong. I think crisis is always, after all, a subjective experience, right? It's a sense of disorientation and, 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 and chaos. And one of the one of the questions I think we face in the current moment in the world of polycrisis is what it means to be something else than freaked out. What does it mean to be reasonable and calm? Does it mean to say, oh, well, this is just history, Neil's reaction at Davos? To which my response is, Neil, I know you know a lot of modern history. What makes you calm about that? If you're saying this is the return of history and no longer Fukuyama world that you were invoking, yeah, I'll take that as a, you know, a preliminary description. Then we can talk about which stage it is at. But, but the... The question of realism 
is, I think, uh, a central one. The question of, as it were, almost the right, the mood, the habitus, the the emotional, personal stance that will allow you to be realistic about this situation is really quite a serious one. And one of the ways in which we deal with that is a kind of forgetfulness, like a goldfish kind of mentality that says, I'm just not going to process the fact that two years ago, none of us could have been at this conference. We were all waiting yeah. for a vaccine and genuinely didn't know whether it would arrive. Yeah. Genuinely, seriously, inside, in the same way as we were hearing this morning, leading experts, even on the most inside of the Kremlin, didn't know the war was coming. People on the most inside, you know, tiers of the bio, medical establishment didn't think we would necessarily be able to get a corona vaccine so that i think we've we've done a very good job of of covering this why we're so freaked out (laughs) um one of the things which would be maybe interesting is to sort of think about uh you know what we could do about it Mm. and maybe looking if we look at the pandemic and climate two things you've thought about enormously um to the extent that there are solutions They've been very different from what we kind of hoped because during our kind of end of history phase, the idea is that we go from the national to the collective Mm. international. We go from from politics to science. We would go from, uh, uh, you know, power based solutions or power based kind of uh, interactions to to ones which were more based on institutions and and Mm. other norms. And on climate, you know, that dream which was most perfectly articulated in Kyoto in the Kyoto Mm. Protocol, even though it was only a partial thing which didn't cover most of humanity. Mm. But it it was very much in line with that European idea of Mm. of where politics was going. You know, obviously it's kind of blown up and we've seen all of the different elements of that blown up. And yet, um, you know, much more slowly than environmentalists wanted um, and in a kind of messy way, we have developed quite impressive solutions, but in the yeah. opposite way to what people thought. Mm. It's been about competition rather than about cooperation. Um, it's been about, um, uh, you know, quite, uh, it, 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 you know, it's been in spite of, um, of, of of international politics rather than because of it almost. And and the pandemic in a way was quite similar, you know, within a few seconds of, of the crisis starting, you have over 100 countries that introduce export controls and try and hoard their own... Um, on the PPE one hand... And their on, but uh, I mean, on the one hand, on the other, the other hand, the, the, the thing got sequenced and the sequence got out and was leaked by Chinese scientists. And then basically you had a extraordinarily global competitive cooperative race Right. to develop a whole variety of different vaccines. So it was the like, perfect combination of cooperation. I wouldn't say, I would never say perfect. I mean, I'm too much, I had too much <laughs> economics in my youth to, to play fast and loose with claims about optimality. <laughs> optimality is a pretty difficult thing to prove. Let's not claim that. It was efficacious. Yeah. We ended up with a whole suite of different vaccines quick. that they all, you know, that work grosso modo. Um, what I think has not gone away, in a sense, and has actually come into sharper focus, is the absolute centrality of science, technology, investment. Like that's that is what we previously understood, but we didn't actually, in the old Fukuyama end of history neoliberal vogue, really understand what it meant. Because actually, the policy of the '90s and the early 2000s was set the prices, get the prices right, and then hands off, technologically neutral, let the market innovation, private actors pick the tech. And now we realise that we can't, we can't afford that. Well, it's A, two things. A, we don't have the time. B, price incentives aren't strong enough. C, there's actually something to be gained by doubling down nationally. 
GE, we no longer want to cooperate with each other. So then that makes your IRA, Inflation Reduction Act, new industrial policy synthesis, which is what people like Jake Sullivan and are getting high on in Washington right now, is the idea that you double down on industrialism, you double down on science and tech and investment, and then you double down on friendship, you know, alliances, knowing who your friends and who your enemies are, democracy versus autocracy. And that then makes a package. It's, you know, it's quite cold, you know, it's essentially quite very much like the Cold War. It's almost pre-Cold War, though. I mean, the reason why Europe jumped ahead was because of the the kind of lack of cooperation and competition in the Enlightenment where you had all of these. You went to some mega theory like that. Yeah, I mean, that you know, this is one of the theses (laughs) about the European divergence from China. Yeah. Um, There is a logic that can be made for that kind of cooperative, uncooperative, you know, competitive scenario i you know wouldn't want to be staking you know we need to decide our future in the next 30 years i'm not like wait five years but that is that is the continuous line through right is is actually the common denominator was the belief really that the ultimate source of progress is 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 technology and industrialism and and economic investment in its wider sense human capital formation in its wider sense and i don't think that is in a in any fundamental way change if anything we become more conscious of the you know the importance of of um, massive redundant almost excessive investment in human capital as our one best bet for managing crises that we can't really predict or fully understand so we have a, a kind of structural problem with this podcast cuz it's called the world in 30 minutes but 30 minutes of adam 2's doesn't get anywhere near the the depth of your thinking on so many different issues. So we've been scratching the surface for for 25 minutes or so. We haven't really talked about Europe yet. Maybe um, we could kind of pivot a bit to thinking about how Europe fits into this sort of polycrisis world. Um, And, you know, um, one of the interesting things is that Europeans thought that they were at the the edge of history Mm. and whether it's on climate, whether it's on dealing with with other solutions that cut across borders, that they had sort of developed a kind of model and a secret source mm-hmm. about it. And that's one of the things that's been the most kind of damaged that European self-image in the last few years. How do you think the, you know, what, where do you think the European project is at in this sort of polycrisis world that we've been talking about? To what extent is it suited to, to provide solutions to the the dilemmas that we've been facing or has it has been sort of superseded is it a kind of now a, a redundant technology um um or one that needs to be completely rethought around the polycrisis well i mean the the situation moves so kaleidoscopically that that um you know the original polycrisis idea concept you know was a reflection by Juncker or the failure of the of the of the eurozone in, in the face of 2008 right the Juncker commission is trying to draw conclusions and navigate its way through the final phases in Greece and so on in 2015 and so the concept emerges from a diagnosis of failure in the in 2020 what you could call the first you know truly manifest global polycrisis crisis the pandemic Europe succeeded in not failing right I mean the the, the prediction early on in and in the reality in March and April and I'm sure you, the ECA FR was as, as closely involved, if not more than me, but the, the mood was terrifying. And there was a real sense that Europe was sliding back towards the dark days of 2011, 2012, very fast. And the, since the personnel, there was a lot of continuity. It was, it was, I mean, it was all hands on deck. Um, 
And I think what's surprising is what emerged out of that. And so, you know, if we'd been having this conversation 18 months ago, I would have said, and I think I do not say, in fact, I may have said so in my book um, on the crisis, that Europe was a kind of preeminent laboratory for explicitly dealing with the problems of the polycrisis, because that's the very least. It's problem, you know, problem bewusstsein, as the Germans would say. Problem consciousness is something the Europeans have. And then, of course, comes... Uh, comes the war, um, and Europe is put back on the back foot, uh, and and you know its weakest suit of all um, is exposed cruelly at, at that moment. As our profound divisions within Europe, I think we should we must take that seriously as a as a huge new fault line. You don't have to spend a lot of time in European policy circles right now to to recognise just how actually, though it's not polite to say so out loud, how profoundly divided Europe remains on this issue, and so. So I, I think what you'd have to say is it's it's really in the what it's exposing is just how rapidly and how fast this scene is moving. I have I see no alternative, but 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 more construction, more building, more institutions, more commitment. You know, I come from the economic and financial side. I've long been a very vocal advocate for you know, a proper EU budget. I mean, if the current demands, and I think these are, we're building up to this now, right? there's a twin debate going on. There's a debate about national fiscal rules and there's a debate about the, the common financial framework. And it is stressed like it's never been stressed before by demands which no one can really dismiss as illegitimate. We're not talking about regional funds and agriculture anymore. We're talking about very, very urgent programs. And so I think there's going to be a hot phase of European debate about within the domain of finance, which is where it needs to be. We need to be talking trillions of euros. You know, Europe is a very, very grown up, very rich place. It's a major player in the world economy, number two or number three by anyone's reckoning. That's where the budget needs to be. It needs to be in the multiple trillion euros for the foreseeable future and building. And on the back of that, you build a debt market, you build all of the apparatus of a functioning fiscal state. Now, it may be impossible, in which case, Europe is underwriting, as you know, Kant would put it, it's self-inflicted immaturity, right? Selbstverständlichkeit is his definition of what exiting in the Enlightenment is about, is claiming for yourself your own maturity. That has been the challenge that's been on the agenda for Europe for at least 15 years now, since 2008. And the it is a political choice. It's highly political. And credit goes to those who, you know, recognise the seriousness of, of this, embrace it. And again, there's this question of realism. Because when you say this kind of thing, people will say, well, that's completely unrealistic. You know, that's dead in the water. But my question back is, how on earth do you imagine that you're, you know, dug in, let's call it for the sake of a word. It's not really reasonable to call it this, but let's admit it's conservative. I, I, don't, I don't think it should be credited with the word conservative because it's not actually a recipe for preserving reality. That's a recipe for disaster if you dig in on those positions. But um, it's more something to do with fake reality. It's fake news. It's a kind of populist conservatism that denies the actual realities we face. And that's really where I think, you know, politics in Europe has to go is to actually struggling with the extraordinarily complex, dangerous, fast moving realities. Um, it's a very, it, it's been a fascinating kind of dialectical process where on the one hand, in policy terms, they've gone exactly where you're talking about, but the national politics has become more and more national. Yes. Uh, even as the reality becomes more and more interdependent. And they're, they're obviously related to each other, this kind of populist, um, technocratic loop. Yeah. These two forces. But it affects, it's, you know, it works on both sides. And, and you can find strange bedfellows in coalitions which look like national populist governments. You actually find collaborators that you wouldn't anticipate. And on the other hand, people who pose as, you know, good, good Democrats 
are actually dug in on positions that are completely destructive to the systemic viability of the whole. So, you know, we the but this doesn't make Europe a failure. This makes Europe a democracy. This actually makes Europe a pluralistic democratic system under pressure, working hard. And that's ultimately the lesson, right, is that Europe is creating a new type of democratic modern politics, has done so over now 25 years of intense, you could say all the way back to German unification, right, intense, intense crisis-driven, history-driven diplomacy. Wow, well, that was that was quite a conversation. Um I think we've run out of time for the main bit, but there is one thing left to do on this podcast, which I should probably have told you about beforehand. It's our bookshelf segment. Um, which You need recommendations for books. It doesn't have to be a book. It could be a film, podcast, any, any form of oh. song. <laughs> why, am I, why, am I, why am I blank? Oh, okay. Oh, no, I'll give you... No, 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 no. No, no. So... Um... But then you say, if you do the intro again, maybe, right. then... So we're running out of time for our formal thing after this dizzying uh, panoramic uh, view of the, the polycrisis in action. Um, but there's one thing left to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. What's on your shelf at the moment, Adam? Well, sticking with the polycrisis theme, the, the blog I would recommend, um, it's almost like a journal, is the polycrisis blog at the Phenomenal World website hosted by the Giant Family Institute written by two good friends of mine, um, Kate McKenzie and Tim Sahe. And if you want to sort of stay current with a conversation and an analysis of very much global, but rooted on the one hand in Europe and the United States, uh, that blog is absolutely indispensable. Easy to remember because it's literally just called the Polycrisis blog um, and uh, fantastic reading. Great, fantastic. And I would obviously recommend all of Adam's books, Shut Down, Crashed, and um, uh, are you still working on your big climate book? I am, on and off. Yeah, no, no, I mean, they, it's been good to be a little slow because the conversation has shifted so much. I mean, it's moved so dramatically from a Paris treaty, you know, organised conversation when I started to one which is now about rivalrous national green industrial policy. And the book will really track that trajectory because it's a very dramatic story. And I'd also like to recommend another little book which comes out of our conversation that uh, I might even have recommended on an earlier podcast, but if I haven't, it, it's a tiny and rather charming book called Leçon d'un siècle de vie, which is uh, by Edgar Morin, the, the person that, that um, coined the polycrisis term. And it's it's kind of wonderful attempt to draw on the lessons from literally a century of of, of being alive. He was born in 1921. He's still alive and he writes this rather, uh, it's very uh, complex book because it's all about things being on the one hand plural and singular and uh, it is, uh, but it's, uh, he tries to, to put together his kind of theoretical thinking with um, with his biography and it's quite a charming um, thing which we'll put a link up to on the website along with the links to the blogs and books that were mentioned earlier. If you've enjoyed um, listening to us today, I hope that you'll head to whatever platform you downloaded it from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, if you want to give us a positive review and a five-star rating, that would be great because it will bring other people to the podcast. But for now, from Adam and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. Goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Anand Sundar and the editor of this episode is Mireya Farrow-Sarats. <laughs>